Hello, I'm Phoebe White from the U.S. Rate Strategy Team, and you're listening to At Any Rate, our global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends, themes, and industries in markets today. I'm joined by Josh Younger and Alex Rover, who's on the phone, to talk about two recent developments in the money markets. First, last week we got Treasury's quarterly refunding announcement, and we learned a couple of things. Financing needs over the first half of the year will be lower than we originally expected, and also the Treasury does not plan to cut coupon auction sizes to make room for the new 20-year security later this year. Combined with the Fed's ongoing reserve management purchases of T-bills, this suggests that by mid-year, the stock of privately held bills should decline to the lowest level since the fall of 2017. And this is at the same time that the AUM of government money market funds has continued to climb. So altogether, this should exacerbate the supply-demand imbalance in money markets. And I'll ask Alex to talk about the implications of that for cash funding spreads in a minute. The second development we want to discuss today is that Fed Governor Quarles, the vice chair for supervision, made a speech last week in which he outlined potential ways to improve the efficiency of reserve distribution. So if the Fed implements the changes to regulatory and supervisory guidance that he proposed, that could have important implications as well over the medium term, and we'll be getting into all of that. But Alex, let me start with you. What impacts do you think the supply technicals in the next few months will have for cash funding markets? Uh, And also, just if you can touch on the the POMOs and TOMOs, uh, the schedule that we got yesterday as well. Yeah, definitely a lot of different moving pieces in the front end. So in cash markets, essentially, you know, a lot less supply um, of, of, of bills and an elevated and potentially growing level of demand for uh, uh, for that product. So, you know, what we're what we're anticipating is that as bill scarcity is increasing, we'll see uh, demand shift to other products. So, you know, one of the things we would expect to see in government money market funds, for instance, would be an increase in demand for treasury coupons, which are a close substitute, um, but not easily sort of, you know, viable and sort of the same size bills typically are. So I think there will also be demand increases for agency uh, discount notes. And of course, tri-party repo, um, treasury repo, uh, you know, funded by the the money market funds, um, grew quite a bit over the course of last year. So there is a fair amount of supply for that, but relative to the the decline in uh, what, what what we're anticipating in the bill market, it's going to be hard pressed, I think, to, to continue to meet that demand um, as we get into the second quarter. So I think, you know, the, the, the bigger picture, I think, is that um, we would sort of anticipate uh, the, the spread between three-month bills and OIS to contract um, you know, in our analysis, you know, for every $100 billion decline in privately held bills, the gap between three-month bills and OIS narrows by about two and a half basis points. So, you know, we would expect that, that this narrowing that we're going to see into June, you know, probably you know, could push bills, you know, somewhere to about 10 basis points below uh, the levels of, of, of uh, OIS. Similarly, we would expect this to bleed into other sectors. So, you know, we would anticipate um, with the demand for repo increasing, we would expect SOFR levels to be be pressured lower and uh, narrowing in GCOIS. And again, we because we think this will affect the broader money markets in general, um, we anticipate that LIBOR OIS could contract as well, um, and that we could see you know, LIBOR OIS under pressure move to within about five to ten basis points by the middle part of the year. Um, we kind of actually think this is is localized to the middle part of the year. So one of the strategies we've talked about in the note was putting on uh, steepeners. So as as, we, as we're getting pressured lower in the middle part of the year, um, anticipating you know a, a steepening of the curve, looking out towards the the back end of the year. 
And then with respect to the open market operations, yesterday the Fed announced reductions in their temporary open market operations. This wasn't unexpected uh, as the messaging from the Fed officials has been that the temporary operations would decrease as the permanent operations have continued to grow. So what we're expecting from the, uh, the Fed in terms of open market operations is a cut in the daily availability of overnight operations from 120 billion to 100 billion. And then in terms of the term operations, we're going to see those contract um, initially from sort of 30 to 25 on the two-week operations, and then there'll be a further adjustment lower on the two-week two operations in the coming weeks. So that by the time we get to the end of the current schedule that the Fed has announced, you know, we'll have sort of a minimum of about $180 billion in TOMOs um, outstanding at any point. That would be about $100 billion in, in the overnight operations and probably about $80 billion in, in terms of aggregate term. And that's in addition to the $60 billion of the permanent operations, the bill purchases that are sort of being added per, per month as we're sort of heading you know, into April. So according to this schedule, I mean, we're anticipating that the, you know, the Fed will raise their, um, their reserve levels, you know, well above the, the early September levels of about one and a half uh, trillion dollars in reserves um, and probably somewhere uh, between you know, one and a half and one point seven trillion by the time we get into mid-year. Got it. Okay. So speaking of reserve levels, let's switch gears for a second and move to the regulatory front. Um, Josh, can you talk about the speech that Quarles gave last week and, and some of the proposals there? Yeah, sure. So uh, a couple that are particularly relevant to reserves uh, specifically. The first was thinking about the stigma assigned to the discount window in practice and trying to remove that stigma. Uh, that's a tough lift. Uh, it's, it's very firmly entrenched in, in the behavior of banks, but it's something the Fed has at least told us they want to address. So I, I think that's a positive uh, the second, and much more importantly from our perspective, is the uh, revision to the guidelines on how to do internal stress testing. So there's a bunch of different places internal liquidity stress testing shows up, uh, but at a minimum, it's part of resolution planning, it's part of uh, regular disclosures to the Fed, it's part of the CLAR exercise. It's, it's a very important part about how banks think about how they use their cash. And so that, taking a step back, you know, how do banks think about using their cash? The first is uh, business as usual payments, just inflows and outflows over the course of the day. It's been going on forever. It's going to keep going on. That They have a good sense of how that works. There's reasonably predictable intraday cyclicals, and, and you need enough cash to cover variations in your balance. Uh, the second is how do those payments react to stress? So stress payment uh, scenarios, and, and that involves ending the day at the same balance you started, but maybe more variation over its course. And finally, it's the day one outflows question. So in the event of significant stress, when you're facing significant deposit outflows, uh, how do you cover uh, that demand on your, on your cash, demand on your reserves? And so traditionally, or at least for a while, there's been a prohibition on using the discount window to cover that cash. So in principle, if you didn't have enough cash on hand at the beginning of the day to cover your outflows, you go to the discount window, get the cash in the Fed, post collateral, and figure it out the next day. Uh, and that's been explicitly ruled out of internal stress testing guidelines. Uh, what Quarles is proposing is bringing that back in, meaning making the discount window accessible under stress uh, for planning purposes. And I think a key there is the stigma in some senses besides the point under those circumstances, because this is about stress testing internal planning guidelines. This is not about actually using the discount window in practice. Uh, and so the important part there is it, uh, it frees up a lot of cash. Uh, so when we went through that list, BAU payments, stress payments, 
and day one outflows. The day one outflows is by far the largest draw on bank cash holdings. It's the way that banks think about the, the amount of cash needed to hold. Most of that is driven by day one outflow considerations. And so if you reduce those requirements in practice by allowing them to assume access to the discount window under stress, uh, that means they have to hold less cash because they could, in principle, get it from the Fed. Um, and, and that cash goes somewhere else because the reserve balance is unchanged. It just gets to flow around more freely. And when we try to total up the various uh, uses of intraday liquidity, we, we come up with a number related to payment activity and other things, uh, excluding day one outflows of something like $250 billion among the GSIBs. Uh, they've got 490. So it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out that that number is too high, right? And, and that could come down a lot. Um, so that the cash gets put into the system, it can flow freely, it can monetize opportunities. And, and that's why we think it's such a big deal for repo is because uh, it can be used to, uh, to take the other side of, of spread widening to police the market in the way that the Fed ultimately expects banks to do. So, Alex, let me ask you, I mean, this sounds like a pretty elegant solution, especially if it doesn't require a formal change to the rulemaking. And we've heard Fed leadership express support for this kind of a change. So do you think that this would solve the issue of reserve hoarding around these times when there's a spike in demand for repo? Well, I think as Josh indicates, you know, what it would do, it was it would free up cash at the large banks to go out and, and put liquidity into the into the repo markets. So in theory, it should help alleviate it. I guess one of the things that about this approach is that it is, you know, I think very focused on on the large banks as, as being the the actors to police the the marketplace. Um, I don't know that that you know it completely eliminates the need for a standing repo facility or or that you know standing repo facility in addition to these changes uh, wouldn't be uh, you know an, an additive solution. You know the the standing repo facility you know could be constructed in a way potentially that would appeal to maybe a broader group of market participants. But I think as Quarles hinted at in his speech. You know, they, they'd rather sort of move ahead with, you know, the tools that they have uh, first, you know, before getting into the, the heavy work of trying to create new tools. Okay. And so let's turn to one other uh, proposal that he talked about. He was also discussing potential revisions to the GSIB rule. So, you know, given the experience with this past year end, do you think we would still need a change to that GSIB rule? Yeah. So GSIB, just for a little bit of review, GSIB is related to the too big to fail concern that was that was meant to be addressed by the whole regulatory structure after the crisis. And so the point of GSIB is to say, uh, what is bigness in practice? Because Lehman Brothers, of course, not the biggest bank, but highly complex and therefore highly disruptive uh, when they failed. And so what they've tried to do is put numbers around this. What, what are the numbers? They, they said, your size is part of your bigness. That makes sense. Uh, your complexity is part of your bigness. That also makes sense. Uh, your cross-jurisdictional exposure is part of it. Uh, your interconnectedness within the financial system is, is part of it, and your reliance on short-term wholesale funding is part of it. And in establishing those scores, you get subscores, you roll it up to a, to a score, and that score determines the charge you're assessed essentially for your systemic risk, the systemic risk you pose to the financial system uh, on account of this bigness measure. And so uh, when we get those scores, we rely on lots of different things, but there was a preference, uh, at least apparently, for, uh, for inputs that were already being reported. So some things were reported on a daily average basis through like tick forms and things like that, call reports, and, and some things were reported on a, uh, on, on a statement date basis, a snapshot point in time. And so um, what Quarles is proposing is aligning more of those inputs with the daily average version 
rather than the statement date version, rather than the point in time version. And the goal is to reduce the stress on funding markets on these special dates, year-end, quarter-end, month-end, things like that, because the regulations are creating a scarcity, in a sense, uh, of, of funding availability simply by how those numbers are being reported. Um, and so uh, the question is, one, how hard is this to do? Let's, let's assume that there's, uh, there's a desire on the part of the, of the Fed to do this. What is the process for actually implementing it? And there, because you're changing how GCIP is calculated, we think it's a, it's a formal rulemaking, which is a whole comment and proposal process that takes six months at a minimum and probably longer than that. It's, it's taken much longer than that for some, for some rules. Um, and it is a significant change, and it's particularly significant if it's part of a broader revision. So there's been a lot of focus on the GCIP rule in general. It's worth noting that uh, what was not mentioned in the speech was changing the bucket definitions to reflect the growth of the overall economy. Uh, was what was not mentioned was uh, alleviating cliff effects by by not relying on buckets in the first place, just drawing a line instead of making categories. And so there's also the issue of how the coefficients with all of these weights are put in. There's a lot of moving parts in GSIB, and a, a full a wholesale revision to the rule is a, is a big ask. Um, and even a targeted revision to the rule is a reasonably big ask of the banking system. So is this going to be in place by the end of the year? I mean, we've already had part of the year, and we've not been doing daily averaging. Right? So I, I think this year is pretty much out of the question. Uh, next year, how, how much time does it take to put in place new processes and reporting infrastructure if we get a new rule in time? And, and that seems pretty hard to see. So maybe 2021, probably 2022, and that's if this happens at all. So it's a very, it's a very forward delivery kind of thing. Uh, it's going to take a while. So how would you recommend positioning for that kind of a change? So the, the issue here is that the, the markets that are most affected by GSIB are uh, cross-currency basis. And the reason why cross-currency basis is so sensitive to the, the specifics of the GSIB rule is because it's basically the worst thing you can do for your GSIB score. It has cross-jurisdictional exposure. It has size exposure. It has complexity exposure. It's a derivative notional. Uh, it has short-term wholesale funding implications. And so any incremental change, particularly one like daily averaging, which increases the burden on banks. It is more of a binding constraint on activity than statement dates. And so it makes it a lot harder to do those trades. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, repo is not only already mostly a daily average, most balance sheet measures are, but we have this whole sponsored repo product, which was designed specifically to be efficient for regulatory purposes. Right? It's, it allows for the netting of exposures that would otherwise be reported on a gross risk basis. And so if you have a certain amount of cash, let's assume that cash is fixed, it has to go into short-term lending somewhere. Uh, there's a strong preference in a world of daily averaging for cross-jurisdictional and other things to take that cash out of the FX market and put it into the repo market, uh, specifically sponsored repo. So you'd see the cost of borrowing against foreign currency collateral, the, cro- the cross-currency basis, especially in jurisdictions where there are significant central bank deposits like euro and yen held by U.S. firms, like those markets are just going to get more expensive. So hedging your dollar assets as a euro investor in short-term FX forward markets is going to get more expensive. Thanks, Josh. Our listeners can find more detail on these topics in our recently published note, All Signs Point to Narrow Spreads, on J.P. Morgan Markets, or reach out to us directly with questions. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 14, 2020.